A warning before we begin. This week's episode contained a discussion about childhood sexual violence. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. She's one of the most influential voices of our time. Human beings are more alike than we are unalike. It's a voice that's spoken to millions. An activist and thinker. People are afraid to be pried loose from their ignorance because they know their ignorance so well, they know it better than they know their body odors. And a prolific writer, performer, and poet. When you want truth, the same way you wanted that breath of air, you've already got it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making Maya Angelou. I'm Brandon Pope. Today, Maya Angelou was one of the most famous and celebrated minds of the 20th century. Her seminal autobiography, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, is one of the most celebrated American literary works of all time. Yet, she's a woman who defies category. It's in the reach of my arms, the span of my hips, the stride of my steps. The curl of my lips, I'm a woman. Anomaly. Joining us is Rita Coburn, Peabody Award-winning documentarian of Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Maya Angelou speaks to us even now. Dr. Randall Jelks, professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Kansas. It's about the resiliency. She asks all of us to be resilient. And a legend in her own right, Dr. Maxine Mims, a longtime friend of Dr. Angelo, 94 years young, and the founder of the Tacoma campus of Evergreen State College. To talk about her is extremely emotional and touching for me. Right now, this moment, is she's right here with us. How did Maya Angelo become Maya Angelo? Keep the melody in your mind and in your spirit. It will keep you tender in the tough times. That's today on Making. Maya Angelou has lived dozens of lives. Her first one began in 1928. Her father was Bailey Johnson, a World War I veteran and a doorman at a swanky Los Angeles hotel. Her mother, Vivian Baxter, was from St. Louis, smart and independent. But together... Angelo called the couple matches and gasoline. My mother abandoned me and my brother when I was three and my brother was five. Burdened by the responsibility of parenting, her parents put Angelo and her brother on a train alone. Notes tacked to their bodies listed their final destination, Stamps, Arkansas, where they eventually found their grandmother. We lived with our grandmother and uncle in the rear of the store. Her grandmother owned a general store. Her Uncle Willie homeschooled her, teaching her her multiplication tables. But the family suffered many indignities. Whenever the clan would ride into the black area, all black men had to hide. Angelo recalls Klansmen on horseback surrounding the store. She helped hide Uncle Willie, who was disabled, inside a produce bin. My brother and I would take potatoes and onions out of the bin 
and my uncle would take his stick and laboriously get down into the bin. And my brother and I would cover him with potatoes and onions. And he would lie there all night. Now let's zoom in on Stamps, Arkansas here. Uh, very small place. And in the 1930s, also a dangerous place for black people, no doubt. There were lynchings throughout the South at the time, and the KKK was very active. Uh, Dr. Angelo has said she only felt safe on the black side of the railroad tracks. Dr. Mims, I'll start with you. Can you try to explain how moments like these might have shaped a young Maya Angelou? Oh, yes. I'm from Newport News, Virginia. I was born the same year as Dr. Angelo, and my birthday is March 4th and hers is April 4th. So I'm a month older than Dr. Angelo. And uh, during that period of time, we all knew we had a curfew. In my hometown, we had what is called a quarter to nine whistle that would blow, and that meant all Black people needed to be off the street at that time. And I'm pretty sure it was in stamps also. And Ms. Coburn, can you tell me about these early years for Maya Angelou? What did being abandoned by her parents and, you know, specifically her mother, what did that mean to her? I think I want to speak to the terror that Dr. Maxine Mims being born in that same year, 1928, Maya Angelou being born in that year, the absolute terror that Black children, women, and men, as with Uncle Willie, had to go through on a regular basis, leaves us with a low-grade traumatic stress syndrome. So before you get to a mother like Vivian Baxter and a father, what I think we have to realize is the way those people reacted in society was a direct result of that stress syndrome. So while her mother and her father may have abandoned her, the stress that they were under to have a child and still have a relationship in a society that was so hateful set the tone for that. And I think that as difficult as it was to be abandoned by Vivian Baxter, thank God for Grandmother Henderson. I believe that that abandonment hurt her deeply. It's like almost being adopted. You wonder, why did anybody give me away? But you also get to the point, somebody took me, and that was Grandmother Henderson. I want to remind the audience, Vivian Baxter, uh, that was Maya Angelou's mother's name. And I, 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 read, I appreciate how you contextualize that, how the abandonment, in a sense, is really related uh, to that terror there. Uh, Professor Jelks, I'll come to you. Can you explain how this relationship um, with her parents is kind of reflected in her early work? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, she's, as a writer, it, attempting to, to express an honesty uh, about what life was like in 1930s uh, Arkansas. Um, just to give a context, uh, throughout the 1920s, uh, the Klan was not just in Arkansas or other parts of the South, but was uh, like a national party. So 
the 1920s saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And it's a fact that the, the extended family for Black people was so important in these uh, this this time. Um, and children were taken in everywhere uh, because the the Great Depression uh, left so many people destitute, and particularly poor Black people in both cities and in the rural countryside. Um, so uh, Dr. Angelo has uh, given comfort, uh, and uh, that, that Ms. Colburn and Dr. Mims have said it well, by the extended uh, community and family. So, and that that's an institution that evolved through slavery. You, you never know who your family was going to be and who was going to take care of you. And so, you know, we got cousins in our family who are not blood, but they're cousins and they aunties and they're uncles. Yep. So. <laughs> Speaking of extended family, did did Dr. Angelo ever kind of delve into the importance of family to her and, and how she felt about this idea of family? Maya Angelou would always say that her birth family was very small because basically it was her and her brother, Bailey. So her brother, her mother, her father. And there was at one point where she could count her entire family and it was 13 people. So she expanded family to what she called community so that she could embrace other people who cared for her and whom she cared for. Because as Dr. Mims and Professor Jeltz makes the case, the historical Black community had to expand. You had to take care of whosoever children were there. If a slave master sold somebody, those kids had to be taken care of. We come from a long tradition of gathering in and making sure that no one was out of doors. We didn't have the word homeless. It was, we make sure that you're not out of doors. And so she would open her home in that way. That's how Oprah got to her, come and spend the night. And she made family and she made community. And she loved that way. And I think that even her abandonment caused her to open her heart to so many people and she opened her heart to us. You know, something that really stands out so much about Dr. Angelo's life is that, you know, this idea of, of it takes a village. It's a story of the Black community, right? And, and Black resilience. And she was a big part of that. And it's also a biblical idea. And the biblical idea, which she studied the Bible and she was studying before she passed in 2014, she was studying to become a minister. <laughs> and this is the biblical idea to that, that all things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And so even though something bad happened and plenty bad happened, she transferred that to it must work to my good. Right. I'm called right. according to that purpose. This is going to work to my good. And I'm sure the turning of it was painful, but she would turn it and let it work to her good. And she would say, I'm going, if she was in pain walking down the hall and you looked at her too long, she said, stop looking at me. I'm going from strength to strength. Yeah. You remember that doctor? Yeah. I'm going from strength to strength. And you know, her main word was courage, the courage to love, the courage to walk, the courage to move. 
She did not allow the negative to take over at all, not at all, never. She didn't even allow negative conversation at her gathering. She'd tell you to be quiet. (laughs) She'd put you out. She put you out. She would put you out of her she house. She would put you out of her house. Were you there when she put that person out that made that joke? I was there when all of the people were put Tell out. Tell me, how did it happen, Dr. Mims? I don't want to. Oh. <laughs> Can I tell it? You, hey, listen, Rita, you have permission. She, somebody made a joke about something she didn't like, and she said, get your purse. Ooh. Da, da, da. No, you get out, because you don't bring that in my house. Wow. You don't about people like that in my house. No negativity. She wouldn't have it. She wouldn't have None. It. And the thing I, it's just not at the Thanksgiving dinner. It's in her personal relationships. It's even when you're just sitting, having lunch or dinner with her, you just could not have anything about another person in her presence. When she was seven years old, Angelo and her brother moved back in with her mother in St. Louis. The reunion was telling. Angelo said she knew immediately why her mother had sent her away. She danced, played jazz records, wore lipstick. She was too beautiful to have children, Angelo wrote later. Meanwhile, her mother's boyfriend was obsessive and controlling. When I was seven and a half, I was raped. I won't say severely raped. All rape is severe. Angelo identified the rapist to her brother, who then told the rest of the family. A few days later, her mother's boyfriend was arrested, released from jail, and then found beaten to death. I thought that I had caused the man's death because I had spoken his name. That was my seven-and-a-half-year-old logic. So I stopped talking. For five years. Rape on the body of a young person, more often than not, introduces cynicism. And there is nothing quite so tragic as a young cynic, because it means the person has gone from knowing nothing to believing nothing. Angelo and her brother moved back to Stamps, She'd later say her years of being mute saved her. She didn't speak. Instead, she read. I memorized Shakespeare, whole plays. I memorized Edgar Allan Poe. I had Longfellow. I had Guy de Maupassant. I had Balzac. And I was able to draw from human thought, human disappointments and triumphs, enough to triumph myself. When I decided to speak, I had a lot to say. And we heard Dr. Angelo say there that rape on the body of a young person leads to cynicism. Uh, Dr. Mims, can you talk to us a bit about how Dr. Angelo escaped that sense of cynicism at such a young age? By doing what she did, she became mute. She shut up. And when the voice came back, look at what the voice did to the world. That five years of mutism, what happened to Angelo during that five years? 
she expresses that she read. So what happened was at seven years old, between seven and 12, think about those books. She gave herself a college education because I know people who can't pronounce Gita Mopasan now and, and would not have read it. And she had whole play Shakespeare Poe. She had it. So once you've memorized it, it's like reading. You get the phonetics, you get the memory, you put the words together, the sentence, the comprehension. She was able to educate herself in a way that was beyond many people with PhDs from seven to 12. Yes, she might have been missing some components, but what happened in those years was that she educated herself and she educated herself to the point where she could sit with presidents and kings and queens and toe-to-toe them because she had it in that wonderful brain that just did nothing after that, but it spanned. And I mean, we got to recognize that's an amazing feat. at so young to memorize Shakespeare, like so many others, James Weldon Johnson and more, you know, taking advantage of the black libraries and the white libraries too. And of course, the show is about the making of an iconic person. Uh, Dr. Jeltz, do you think that this moment, these five years of being mute, that Uh, that happened. Is this really kind of the period where the groundwork is happening for the the Dr. Maya Angelou we we see in the future? So uh, 12 years old is the age of uh, that many societies you become an adult. And she's taking information in and distilling it. And in those uh, moments of silence, obviously she became a listener, right? And finally, when she does speak, uh, one of the things that uh, I note about The Cage Bird, her first memoir, is that the great oral tradition that Black people possessed, it was a family virtue to speak in church, um, to recite the Bible on Easter Sunday. And it it was, at least in my family, a matter of pride. BYP. that's right. If you didn't do your part right, it was it was a whole family family issue. So, I uh, but it, in that moment, she also was listening. She took the word very seriously. Now, from that early trauma and that early learning, she went on to do so much after that that we can't possibly cover all uh, in the pod here. But I'm going to list off some of the things here. I mean, she moved to Oakland. She became the first black woman conductor on San Francisco's cable cars. Uh, She got pregnant at 16 with her only son and then moved to LA, New York, Hawaii, Cleveland. She danced on stage, sang Calypso music. She was cast in a major musical, had several marriages and divorces, some that led her to live in Cairo and Ghana. I mean, she was really well-traveled. And she did all of this before the age of 40. Now we're gonna revisit her Morocco moment in a bit. But other than that, Ms. Coburn, which of these moments really stands out to you the most? I look at her and I think the experience of Ghana and I think the experience of mothering, period, are huge aspects in her life. My heart goes out to any 16-year-old that gets pregnant the first time that they have sex and makes the decision to have the child and to become a mother 
who was not mothered the way she wanted to be. And she did not want to be her mother or father. She did not want to abandon her only son. And there's no relationship with the father. And there she is. And then she has the opportunity to dance, the opportunity to be in the Blacks, the opportunity to go to Ghana. Should she not do anything and stay and try to mother alone? It's not, can I have it all? It's, can I be a person that has more than one layer? Can you see me as a Black girl? Can you see me as a pregnant Black girl standing outside of the United Nations watching people go in? Can you see me become a person who could speak seven languages and one day be in there? Can I see me as more than this baby in my belly, in my arms, and I still have all of these desires in my heart? Who can I be? And I think that she becomes Maya Angelou for us because she was able to be more than one dimensional. Absolutely. You talk about those dimensions of a person and the dimensions of her life. Uh, I want to talk about one particular story that uh, Dr. Angelo liked to tell, and I think it may illustrate some of how she became who she is. So in the 1950s, Dr. Angelo was known as Miss Calypso. And it was around this time she auditioned for a role in Portium Bess. And that's that groundbreaking opera that brought America's racial divide to the stage. So Angelo got the part and it took her on a 22 nation tour. And on a stop in Morocco, the company was asked to sing each song in concert. Now, Angelo's part didn't have a solo. So the conductor asked her if she knew any spirituals that she could sing. And Ms. Coburn, this story, it's so eloquently told in your documentary, And So I Rise. I want to play a minute of the story from Dr. Angelo's perspective, her describing what happened next. We went to church every all the time. And at all those meetings, we sang. So I told the man, yes, I know a spiritual. So I stood on the stage alone and sang. I am a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I'm lost in this wide world alone. I sang her song. When I finished, 4,500 Arabs jumped up and hit the floor and started to shout, And I looked stage right at the wings where the singers had sung, and they were looking at me like... So I said, I'm sorry. I mean, you sang Puccini and Bach and Beethoven and Haydn, and I sang what... W.B. Du Bois called the Sorrow Songs. Songs written not by a free and easy people, not by a leisure class. Songs written from the heart, written with their blood, written with the whips and the lash on their back. When I sung these songs, the people couldn't stop screaming. Then I began to think, ah, I see. Now I see when the people were passing out the big packets of land and money, my people had none of that to give me. But what they gave me, look at what they gave me. My Lord, look at what they gave me. It opens doors for me all over the world. It's a great blessing. What a storyteller she was. So we just heard Angelo speak about the power of art when it's created out of anguish and sorrow. How has this shaped her work, this, this pain, this sorrow, this anguish? 
I think that at every juncture in her life, and we never know when junctures in our lives are going to come up, because she rose to the occasion and the moment, if it was rape, if it was abandonment, she could own her pain. And because she owned her pain, a little girl could read about the taboo of incest or rape and not understand it. And yet when it comes back years later and there's a context to put it in, understand that a woman defied book bans and said, this happened to me. And still I rise. And so gave permission to people to say, I was sexually abused and then I used my sex at a point to make money and I'm still here and I talk with kings and queens. You can do it. It doesn't matter what you ate for dinner yesterday. It's who you are today. It's who you choose to be today. And that's what she kept saying to us. And it was very empowering for Black people and it was very empowering for women and therefore it was empowering for everybody. And she was talking to the part of you that you don't want to tell anybody about. The part of you, she said, when she did Gather Together in My Name, the book that talked about her being involved in as a prostitute and as a madam, uh, she said, I did it so that the people could understand that even if the rest of the society looked down at them, they could gather together in my name, gather together. Let's, let's tell it. And I remember once she said there were two women behind her walking as she was walking back to her bus. And one woman said to the other one, why you like my Angelo so much? And the other one said, cause she just tell the truth about it. She didn't been down real low and she didn't been up real high and she just tells the truth about it. And that's what helps to humanize her and us. Yeah, you know, I I, I just want to add a, a, a slight academic point here. Um, Maya Angelou's honesty in reflection really sets off a wave of Black women's uh, writers of that era. You've got... Uh, Alice Walker, you've got Toni Morrison, uh, uh, Tony K. Bambara, uh, one of my own teachers, Gail Jones. Uh, all of these women can write more powerful truths. Uh, I think Maya, uh, 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 Dr. Angelo, really uh, uh, opens that wave. Rita mentioned, you know, the friendship of James Baldwin, but also, I mean, including her friends with Martin Luther King. Um, and also Malcolm X, she helped him develop the organization of Afro-American unity. And Angelo, she was devastated when Malcolm X and Dr. King were assassinated. In the aftermath of King's death, Baldwin and others encouraged her to focus on her writing. What she did next was publish her first autobiography. That's coming up in just a minute.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. When I was three and Bailey four, we had arrived in the musty little town wearing tags on our wrists which instructed, to whom it may concern, that we were Marguerite and Bailey Johnson Jr., from Long Beach, California, en route to Stanford. I know why the caged bird sings. That's the name of Maya Angelou's first autobiography. She wrote about her childhood, age 3 to age 16. She wrote about her falling mute, about her teenage pregnancy, and it impacted millions of people, including a young Oprah Winfrey. And for the first time, reading a story about someone who was like me, I was that girl who loved to read. I was that girl who was raised by my southern grandmother. I was that girl who was raped at nine. The book made her famous and beloved all around the world. It also launched a literary career that would span the next four and a half decades. I want to write so that the, the reader in Des Moines, Iowa, in Kowloon, China, in Cape Town, Pretoria, in South Africa, in Harlem, in Boston. I want to write so that that reader can say, you know, that's the truth. That's the truth, yeah. I wasn't there and I wasn't a six-foot-tall black girl, but that's the truth. That's human. So I want to talk about Caged Bird for a little bit. Seminal work from uh, Dr. Angelo here. Uh, Dr. Mims, I'll start with you in reflecting about this. This is 1969 we're talking about. What did it mean to have these stories, particularly the story about um, her rape, in print and written by a Black woman at this time? I think, you know, 68 was a rough time for all of us. And uh, to go into 69 uh, with these kinds of opportunities to experience the images of the language uh, was rewarding. She gave us a gift at that time. And I think the more I sit here and think about it, she was constantly giving gifts through her literature, through her language. She was always making us know today is the day that you're being born again. The cage bird open up doors for so many of us. I'm just thinking as I sit here that what she did for us, she gave us a gift of being in the cage. Through her autobiography, through her stories, through her imagination, and then allowed us to experience the techniques of rising. Ms. Coburn. From your perspective, I mean, a black woman doing this work at this time, so so personal, so evocative, um, and shared with the world, what did that mean? Well, 1968, as Dr. Mims said, was a difficult time for this country. Um, 
we had assassinations of our leaders. We also had um, a very verbal and evocative racial warfare going on. And we negated women in many of those aspects. Women were the last to the party for civil rights, the last to be acknowledged. There was also the racism that was happening to us along with sexism. So it's within that backdrop, not today, society. No new too wasn't happening. You were supposed to shut up. You definitely weren't supposed to tell people you were raped. The whole idea that you said somebody raped you and as a little child, children and people who have physical disabilities were not even thought of in 68. There was nothing right. to get up on the curb. You had to do the best you could. The bus would come and put you away. So we have to contextualize that during this time period that Blacks were supposed to shut up and they were trying to speak, that women were negated and children weren't even thought of. She said, look at me. I was raped. And I was raped in my own house. Now, people didn't, you know, that was something happened outside. I was raped in my own house. And look at me. And she turned the spotlight on herself and the crevices in the home and in the society and put it in a book. She wrote it down. She became noisy. She became noisy. Yeah, she helped us break collective silence. Yeah. And she did it in such a way that the rhythm, the, the noise with the rhythm, you know, kept the tempo of who we are as a, as a, as a nation and as Black people. You remember uh, priests and everybody, people were doing stuff, but nobody was telling. And a little Black girl from Stamps, Arkansas said, mm-mm, I'm going to tell it. And you're right, Dr. Mim, she became noisy. And that's why they yeah. banned the book. That's why they banned it. They didn't okay, right. rather you didn't read it than to know the truth. It took 50 years about before, and the book some places is still banned. And it took those times for us to say she was telling the truth for some people. Some of us knew it immediately. Some of us knew it personally. Some of us were embarrassed. Why did she tell right. what happened in her family? She should have hushed, but she didn't do it. So Page Bird became something that could be taught and it healed people. So when Oprah says, it happened to me when I was nine and other little people, boys and girls could say something, somebody sees me, I'm over here. I'm I'm trying to signal I need help and people don't want to talk to me. All you could do was tell. <laughs> yeah. People felt seen and they felt heard. And the reason I think they felt seen and heard, we don't give uh, Dr. Angelou enough literary credit, right? I mean, it's 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 she she's a wonderful writer. And that's hard work. She puts a lot of hard work 
to get you to visualize, to understand. But that story is so authentic that that narrative is so authentic and that it, it captures, you know, it captures me at a 14 year old boy. And I have no, no experience of what she's going through, except that I'm a black young man uh, 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 with family and understanding the dynamics of urban culture and so forth. So it's a very powerful story. So giving giving her her due uh, and her literary credit because she's a writer. The thing that you've got to understand, this is a woman that is multi-talented. This is a dancer. So the book may have been written, yes, like we know traditionally. She's a singer. She's all of that. And she is teaching us how to integrate all of that into ourselves. So our image of ourselves would be expanded so that we can accept the fact that we are great. She's helped to remove us from the success go to college, blah, 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 go to finish high school and get a job. She says, no, that's not what it's about. Learn to have the courage to love and you'll be able to expand your images and include a lot of people in your circle. That's what she's offered us and that's what it is. Now, Professor, you, you mentioned here, you know, that people don't often give proper accolades. We're going to do it we're going to make sure we do it here. Um, Dr. Angelo, she wrote seven autobiographies. You know, she lived a rich life um, and she passed away in 2014. And it felt like a legend really left us. Miss um, Coburn, could you reflect on what the legacy of Dr. Angelo is today? It's such a big question. Maya Angelou speaks to us even now in what Dr. Mim said. She created a rhythm. In her poetry, there's a dance, there's a song, there's a civil rights movement going on. In each word, she used the kinds of words that would pierce us when she says a musty little town, a musty little town. She had the economy in the phrases that we know her from uh, and still I rise, or when we say it's in the bend of my wrists, I'm a woman phenomenally. You have presidents, you have our first black, Supreme Court justice. You have people quoting her all over the place. And she left that to us as a legacy, the power of words. That's how you get the rise. And when Professor Jelks talks about the KKK, the KKK wrote in her town, they didn't even put on a sheet. They didn't mind that you knew who they were because they felt they had the power. So if the president, if the sheriff, if the store owners were all supremacists and you couldn't call them if something happened to you, well, who are you going to rape? Who are you going to tell? The, who was going to come for you? You were going to have to come and show up for yourself. You were going to have to rise from within. 
And that is what she taught us. If you're a little girl over here, a little boy over there, this happened to you or this happened to you, you better rise from within. The Calvary is not coming to save you. There is no prince. You're not going to get a golden slipper. You're going to have to get up. You're going to have to ask God to help you and go inside yourself and excavate everything that you can and rise. Powerful legacy there. Professor Jokes, I want you to weigh in here, if you could, on the legacy of Dr. Angelo. Well, I mean, it's about the resiliency. Um, She asked all of us to be resilient. You know, uh, she was one of the few women to speak at the Million Man March. Uh, All of her life exemplified this kind of resiliency uh, to that we have, as been uh, eloquently stated already, uh, a positive legacy, a hopeful legacy, and so forth. And Dr. Mims, we'll end here with you. You get the final word. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about Dr. Angelo's legacy and your relationship with her? To sit here uh, at this moment and see our experience you and Rita and Randall and to talk about her is extremely emotional and touching for me. This is who she is right now. This moment is she's right here with us because we were able to penetrate everything, the battery down, Rita coming on, the technology, and it didn't work. None of this has worked. We're here. That's who it is. Maya is right here with us. She said, oh, they want to talk about me. Let me do something to help them. And here we are. The thrill. This is Maya Angelou. And I want to thank you from the bottom of And I want to thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, this has been a powerful discussion for a powerful icon. Um, and we rise together. And truly, I mean... This has been Making Maya Angelo. Special thanks to Miss Rita Coburn, Professor Randall Jelks, and Dr. Maxine Mims. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. This episode of Making was produced by Justin Bull and Hina Shravastava. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to the Dr. Maya Angelou Foundation. Thank you also to each of our guests. And be sure to check out Rita Coburn's Peabody Award-winning documentary, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise on PBS. Also check out Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America by Randall Jelks. More episodes soon to come. Be sure to press that subscribe button and we'll see you next week.
Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.